0: I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I've got Jonathan Yaffe. He is the CEO and co-founder of AnyRoad, which just announced a $10 million Series A raise. And AnyRoad is a data and analytics platform that powers a lot of experiential marketing efforts for many of the Fortune 2000. They include companies like Absolute, the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, Michael's Arts and Crafts, Honda, Diageo, and many others. Jonathan began his career in marketing at Red Bull. We talk a little bit about that and much, much more in terms of experiential business, why experiences matter so much in today's environment, and a lot more. I do have one correction to make. Um, During the recording of this, I talk about merch drops from Chobani and Ritz Crackers. And actually, it wasn't Ritz Crackers, it was Cheez Its. So, for all those cheese it lovers out there, I'm sorry I got that wrong. It happens. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Yaffe. Jonathan, welcome
1: to the show. It's so great to be here, Alan. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Be a great chat. We've got a lot to talk about, but I have to start off with this amazing college job that you had. It seems like the best college job you could ever have. Tell us about it.
1: It was pretty spectacular. While I was in college, I got hired by Red Bull. I was one of the first marketing hires in, in the United States when they first came here. And I started on the mobile energy team. And we drove around these big Red Bull cars with large oversized can on top, unlimited Red Bulls. And the entire point was to find Pinos, which are people in need of energy. Cannot make this stuff up. <laughs> I, I moved from there into more of a marketing role, which I stayed in after college. And we were spending billions of dollars a year on experiences and we knew that this actually changed people's love uh love of the brand and got people to drink more red bulls but at the time we had no data and we really had no idea just how powerful these experiential programs were and that actually led me to where i am today
0: let's talk about from driving a car with a big energy drink on the top to marketing those energy drinks what happened in between to get you to where you are as a CEO and, and
1: co-founder of AnyRoad? I'm a big data guy. And two things have happened. The world has become significantly more experiential and the world has become significantly more data-driven. And the world of marketing has been become significantly more data-driven. And while I was at Red Bull, we were spending, as I mentioned, up over $1 billion per year on experiences, which... We were doing to build brand loyalty, change cons- consumer behavior. And we had no data. We had no understanding of who these consumers were, how many Red Bulls they were drinking, whether these experiences were actually building long lasting brand love. And this drove me absolutely crazy. And so now, 20 years later, I believe we're in the middle of a massive cultural and economic shift from a things economy to an experience economy. And we see this in terms of millennials who are spending way more money on experiences than things. Car ownership is decreasing all over the world. Retail brands are literally shutting down every single week. You have the cultural zeitgeist, people like Marie Kondo, if you know who she is, who's built a global brand telling us to go into our closets, hold up an object that we own and ask ourselves, does this bring me joy? And if not, you throw it away. Like the world has fundamentally shifted. No, nobody would have built a global brand 30 years ago telling us to throw away our hard-earned objects.
0: Right. It seems anti-American.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. We, people would have rioted years ago. And now it's, it's a sign of success that we don't have to rely on things. We want to spend more money on experiences. We want to engage with experiences. It's not about ownership anymore. And what does that mean for brands? Brands are dying left and right, but the brands that are thriving understand that this is the way the world's moving and they're actually transforming themselves into experiential businesses. And we see this across the entire Fortune 2000 where CMOs and CEOs are working together to basically make their companies experiential, but still the data side has not caught up. So essentially what we built at AnyRoad is the platform for consumer branded experiences. And so we partner with generally Fortune 2000 consumer brands to not only scale operationally all these experiential programs generally globally, but also to really change consumer behavior, which leads to revenue growth and and increases of brand love.
0: You did a good job there telling me what AnyRoad does help me understand the use case. Let's say I've got, give me a couple of examples, maybe is the best way to think about it.
1: Absolutely. So Michael's Art Stores, uh, which is the 73rd largest retailer in the United States, runs art classes for over 1 million consumers every year. And they do this both in all of their 1,255 stores, but also on Zoom right? During COVID, a lot of people stayed home and took art classes on Zoom, and they want to be wherever their customers are. They want to be at the center of the crafting universe. You have brands like Lululemon that spend $300 million a year on free yoga classes. You can go into any of their stores and take yoga classes all over the world or online. They even started building out some stores that don't even have checkout kiosks because it's not about the sale. It's about actually the brand affinity and the experience. You have brands like REI that believe that in 10 years, they'll be making more money selling experiences than things. You have brands like Anheuser-Busch, 1.6 million people a year take a Budweiser brewery experience. One million people a year visit the Kentucky bourbon trail. And they don't go to just read about bourbon or sit in their room and drink it. They go to learn about the history of these bourbons and meet the master distillers and do tastings of different vintages. And what we're seeing is that every brand is really focused on looking at how experiences change consumer behavior.
0: You had me with bourbon and REI. (laughs) It's funny you say that because I didn't even know that they offered bike riding classes. And I'm sure there are dads out there and and moms too that want to teach their kid how to to ride a bike. My kid was not going to let me teach her how to ride a bike. Like she's just, you know, very headstrong. Knows how to do it, of course. Falls over. I don't know how many times. And so we booked a class at REI, and I'll be forever grateful because I don't know how they do it, but within a like afternoon, she's riding a bike and and happy as can be.
1: Absolutely. And now just. sit back and watch as to how your family perceives REI, not just as a place to buy hiking shoes once in a while, but this is the place that taught your daughter how to ride a bike. She, whatever kind of bike she started riding is going to build a lot of brand affinity with her for the rest of her life. And REI becomes a lot more ingrained into your family's life rather than just a place to buy stuff.
0: Absolutely, I I visit much more often now after that experience. So I'm living what you're saying, and hadn't really put the two pieces together until you mentioned it. I can't wait to do the Bourbon Trail, though.
1: It's it's amazing.
0: (laughs) I drink enough of that already, but I need to go go learn a little bit more. Let's talk more broadly. What have you been seeing in the experiential marketing space? It's been a tough little go with the pandemic, and so is it coming back? And maybe what's changed, or what are you seeing?
1: The pandemic happened. Some of us remember this. And we were terrified, obviously, right? We are an experienced company. and But the craziest thing happened is our customers started coming to us, and these are huge organizations, and saying, look, we are still going to invest heavily in experiential. It just might be the form of these experiences that change. But we need to be wherever our customers are. I sat down with a lot of the, the best CEOs of our generation. And they were saying, look, if our customers are in stores, we need to be in stores next to them. If our customers are on the beach, we need to be on the beach. If our customers are sitting on their sofas for a year and a half, how do we get to be in their apartment with them? So what we realized is that digital experiences were really just going to take over. And in fact, Digital experiences really just came out of nowhere. And I don't know if I'd use the word replaced, but it's the first word that comes to mind, really replaced this world of offline IRL experiences. So people like my mom, who had never heard of Zoom before, now every day she's on Zoom classes and Zoom lectures and Zoom theater, and the world has been pushed forward by six to 10 years easily because of this. And now what we're seeing post-COVID is that in real life experiences are skyrocketing to levels far higher than any pre-COVID highs. And you see this across music festivals, which are selling out in hours before they even announce lineups. Hotels and airlines are full all over the country. You cannot get a rental car in this country. It's, it's really profound how much people are coming out of their apartments and coming out of back into the world and are craving not going out and buying stuff, but they're craving experiences and human connection. And then the most shocking thing to me is that digital experiences are here to stay. I think a lot of us have Zoom fatigue and prefer not to stay at home for optional two-dimensional Zoom meetings or conferences. But it's really interesting that when brands go back to their in-real-life experiences, they also realize that by continuing to scale their digital experiences they can actually connect with people eliminating the, the geographic constraint
0: it makes a lot of sense and it and we've heard this on the show with other guests that have come on um, the one that's standing out right in my mind now because we were talking about bourbon earlier is the kentucky derby and the fact that they added digital activation for the derby at home partnerships that they had with various brands and they, they've they actually been able to extend and make the platform of the Kentucky Derby as a thing to engage with much more valuable and with dramatically more reach to your point, like ge- getting over the geographic constraint that they've had. It makes sense, but you don't And I think until the pandemic to your point, I don't know that I would have said a digital experience could be something that I'd be willing to pay for. Because it was a grading experience before, but now it's a way to extend and experience something in your own house, in your own life.
1: And and the interesting thing just about the, the, you mentioned paying for the digital experiences, a lot of these brands are not looking at these experiential programs as specific revenue drivers. They're looking at them as a way to actually build long-term brand loyalty and ultimately increase lifetime value. So the idea is not you're going to go to your favorite bourbon distillery in Kentucky in order to pay a $20 ticket. It's so that you will totally fall in love with your favorite bourbon brand, let's say Wild Turkey. And that's going to actually increase your lifetime love and ultimately your monthly consumption of Wild Turkey for the rest of your life.
0: Yeah, it's pretty, pretty dramatic what can happen. As someone that you've been doing experiential marketing since college, like we talked about, what in your mind makes it so powerful?
1: I think what makes it so powerful is we are experiential human beings, right? Like we see 14,000 advertisements every day. And if we see an Instagram ad or we pass a billboard by the side of the road or we receive a spam email, these don't actually create any real engagement with a brand marketers might sell me like an extra t-shirt. You can actually create a conversion, but you're not actually going to create like lifelong LTV growth. However, if the most precious thing that we have as human beings is time. And if I'm taking my precious time, which I can never get back to go out of my way to opt in, to spend that time with a brand that I really love and, and respect and appreciate, That is the most powerful type of engagement that there is. And we would organize these incredible Red Bull events and we'd have 50,000 people come. These are 50,000 people who are taking three hours out of their day to, to spend with an energy drink. And that's profound. That's probably the deepest form of this kind of brand love that you can ever imagine. And it's way more impactful than somebody liking something on Instagram. It's way more impactful than somebody posting a picture of something on Facebook, but like actual time you taking your daughter to REI to teach her how to bike ride. That is a huge level of trust that you have with the REI brand. And when you can actually build that over time, that's unbreakable.
0: Let's talk about measurement. If you don't mind, like, Measurement, like you said, has been a challenge. Even today, it's not easy. And, and a lot of brands that I talk to and interact with, they, they don't collect or they do, but they don't do anything necessarily with the data that they are getting. In your mind, like, how can marketers be better at capturing the data and then ultimately using the data?
1: Yeah. So I was guilty of this too. (laughs) When I was at Red Bull, we were asked to write a a report about this amazing event we did called Flugtag, which is Flying Day, where people build these little planes and fly them off the pier into the bay. And we had 50,000 people come and we had to write a report for headquarters and we wrote 50,000 people came. We spent $14 million. We gave out 70,000 Red Bulls and that was it. And this drove us absolutely nuts. Really, this is the entire ROI from this investment. We know nothing else about this. And there's this really sick joke in the experiential world, which is, uh, how do you know if your experiential programs are actually effective and changing consumer behavior? You count people's smiles. <laughs> and, and, and you'll see this. And, and it started off real. Now it's it's the joke at the experiential marketing summit that everyone talks about. But seriously, people are still counting smiles. Even REI has a really hard time taking your family's experience with bicycle training and understanding how much more you are going to spend over your lifetime and how much more your daughter is going to spend over her lifetime at REI as a direct result of that class. And so really, from a blanket statement, the world has changed. And I used to run massive experiences at Red Bull and not be able to measure it. And we just said, oh, it's a lot of people came. This is great. They seem to have a great time. But the world's changed now. And now marketers need to use data every step of the way to understand ROI, ideally real time, to understand conversion, to understand LTV and, and how to grow that LTV. And what we found is that any measurement's better than nothing, first of all. But the second piece of this is The problem starts at the point of data collection and brands have a very difficult time really being able to collect this data, structure it, and analyze that data against all of their real-time sales data.
0: Help update me a little bit too in the notion of like how data is being collected today. Like I, I still remember people with clipboards wandering around the malls trying to get people to take little surveys and things like that. Obviously now that everything's on a mobile phone and even through the pandemic, then I I think everyone thought QR codes were dead and now they're like everywhere because you need them for your menu. You need them to order or pay your bill. But I imagine that it's more mobile enabled now, but maybe help update my view on how data is being collected.
1: You'd be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) We work with a number of national retailers that shall remain nameless here, but pre-working with us, You'd walk in and you want to participate in an in-store experience or an in-store service. And they would have a clipboard (laughs) Uh, and you'd write your name and email down. And these would end up in some storage room in the back, not connected to anything. And it shocks me that this is still happening. But it's a sign of the fact that a lot of marketers have not embraced technology and specifically data technology in the way that a lot of their peers have. And because of that what happens is that this data is totally siloed, which basically means that the the people running the experiences might use I don't know a ticketing system or or a a Google form to collect data, but what happens to that after that afterwards? That doesn't actually get connected to their CRM system. And and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. They're not able to match records with their POS system. And they're not able to see if somebody comes in every day that this was the same person that came in yesterday. And so suddenly you have a lot of different departments, each with their own siloed data, but the strongest data, which is really the experience, people going out of their way, taking their time to spend time with a the brand they love, doesn't get connected into the entire ecosystem.
0: We're going to beat this REI example to death. But like in my experience, I know I'm pretty sure we filled out an online form, maybe on their website. But then there was another couple of forms we had to fill out when we got there. Paper, of course. I'm sure that information in particular never made it back anywhere outside of that store, that one location. Okay. Now I've got this data. What can I do with it?
1: So many amazing things. First you can understand which type of consumers should be on which type of experiences so that we can personalize experiences the same way that we personalize the internet. So if you and I opened Instagram right now, we'd have very different experiences. And that's by design, right? However, if you and I go to a bourbon distillery together and you are the biggest fan of of bullet bourbon and you go all the time, your trip every single year, the people there, all the different rare vintages, and I don't drink at all, hypothetically speaking, (laughs) then we should definitely not take the same experience. And so the brands that are most mature with their experiential and their data strategies are starting to look at how to personalize experiences the same way we personalize the internet. And what we get there is actual data that shows how people's behavior changes after this experience, whether that is brand love whether that is increased spend. How how does REI use rock climbing for both of us in different ways to get us each to spend double the amount we normally spend at at REI per month?
0: There's so much richness that you could mine from that and use to personalize both the physical and the digital experience that you have with that brand. So to your point, getting your data collected in in the, the right place, consolidated, definitely unlocks a lot of opportunity. For sure. This has been fascinating. Any last thoughts before we transition topics? I want to make sure you didn't leave anything left hanging in the balance before we change subjects.
1: My last thought about this is we, we talked about a number of retailers, right? Michael's like REI, We talked about a number of CPG companies like Bourbon Distilleries and, and Budweiser. But what we're seeing is really all kinds of different organizations in all kinds of industries. Whether it's car companies that are doing driving experiences around racetracks to banks that are opening their own cafes and doing a lot of, a lot of appointments to help people financially plan and, and, and save for their 401ks and understand what it takes to take out their first mortgage. These are all real experiences that are, are, are meant to change behavior rather than just a service meant to make money.
0: I 100% agree. And even a couple more that just to throw out there, the old, maybe stale in some people's view of the world, brands in the grocery aisles, like a Ritz Crackers or a Chobani are trying to create experiences and merch, if you will, to take as a way, one, to collect data on consumers and customers and things like that, but also give other ways that people can experience the brand outside of eating it. (laughs) And so anyway, those two have stuck out in my mind recently with some of the merchandise opportunities or merch drops they've done for their brands. So yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. But yeah, there there is no, to your point earlier in the conversation, I don't think there's any category of product or service that couldn't be extended into another experience of some sort or fashion.
1: Totally. And I think the the way the world is moving is... As things become more commoditized, the brands that are going to be around in 10 years are actually going to all become experiential companies.
0: With that, let's switch gears a little bit. We like to get to know the person that comes on the show a little bit deeper. My favorite question to ask everyone is, has there been an experience of your past that makes up who you are today?
1: So right after Red Bull, I eventually, I quit. I saved up money. I was living with my grandma and I sold my car. And I sold my bus. I had a school bus, which I had bought for Burning Man. And I bought a one-way ticket to the middle of the Amazon rainforest in Brazil to Manaus with just money and a small school-sized backpack. And I decided that I was going to travel in South America until I ran out of money. So I was you know, sleeping on beaches and sleeping in a hammock some of the time and hitchhiking around and climbing mountains. And I learned Portuguese and Spanish and learned how to dance salsa very badly and did a lot of scuba diving and wrote poetry every single day for two and a half years. And it was amazing. I eventually ran out of money <laughs> two and a half years later and and moved to Japan, which is a kind of a separate story. But it's 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 interesting. A lot of my friends from college ended up going and, and Taking jobs and starting their careers and and at, at, at some moments i was I said, "Am I doing the wrong thing here? Am I delaying the inevitable? I would get emails from family members who were very concerned for my safety and asked me if I was wasting my time. One of my family members said, "I know you're enjoying this, but where's the gold at the end of your rainbow?" And I was like very offended by this, but ultimately, I don't think I'd be where I am now without having that experience, without having the ability to really just explore, not even in a metaphorical sense, but just push myself in different directions, literally. And I I think it's rare that people are able to take that kind of time and do that. And if they do, they often save it for this kind of abstract idea of retirement. But why not do that when you're young and don't have a lot of, you know, commitments?
0: It is the worst designed experience of anyone's life, retirement. It should come early in life when you can do anything. <laughs> when you get old and like physically, you have some limitations that's the perfect time to put you behind a desk and make you type with your fingers. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I love that, I love that. There's a lot of stories we need to unpack in a different show because I want to know about the bus, I want to know about Burning Man. Japan is a whole other story. And and this notion, I did pick up on your bio, you studied neuroscience in undergrad and you also, I think, won a poetry slam competition and started a poetry competition. Slam group. I want to say at college.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah, I started the UC Ber- Berkeley Poetry Slam team, and then we won uh, a few times. We won the uh, national championships.
0: We could spend all day just unpacking you, <laughs> but I love it when I meet people that are have a science or math stent, but they there's some sort of love or, or experience with the arts as well, and it, it makes for a really interesting conversation. I don't know this to be true, but it does make me think that those folks have connections or make connections in their thinking that sometimes other people don't. And so anyway, it's nice to meet you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you you too. What advice
0: would you give your younger self if you're starting this journey all over
1: again? I think I would remind my younger self to enjoy the process and enjoy life. I'm guilty of this a lot, just put it, creating these goals in my head and setting these goals for myself. And I am I have a, a lot of, I feel like I have a lot of drive in order to get to these goals, but sometimes I lose sight of the really just enjoying the intermediary steps to get there, even when they're difficult. The process of building any road for has been very difficult. It's been extremely rewarding and I've been enjoying it, but sometimes I need to take a step back and be like, wow, I'm, this is not easy but I can still enjoy it. I can still love the process. I can still think, what am I learning from this? And how am I growing? And how am I building uh, something that's making a real change in the world even before I get to some final abstract goal?
0: Cool. Is there any topic that you're trying to learn more about you think marketers should be learning more about today?
1: I think marketers should really change the way they look at success. And what I mean by that is a lot of marketers are really focused on conversion where they should be focused on lifetime value. And so, if, if you are a marketer these days, you come out of college, you get a, a digital marketing job, you have a $100,000 budget, you spend it on Google AdWords or on Facebook, and you get click through rates, you get conversion rates. You can see how much money you generated. You go back to your boss and you say, this is great. I spent $100,000. and We got $110,000 of increased sales. Okay, fine. But what if we take a step back and say, it's not about selling an additional t-shirt right? on Instagram. It's not about the conversion. It's about how do I get Alan to buy 10 additional t-shirts every year for the rest of his life? And turns out you can't do that with digital marketing. There are other ways to do that, but what we've found is that experiences are not there to sell one additional product. They're there to actually, in some cases, double or more customer lifetime value. And the problem until now is that people don't focus on LTV growth because it's much harder to measure and understand.
0: And it requires data that we've been talking about too. One, that to capture the experiences that people are having such that you can understand that contribution to long-term value increase. But yeah, I I 100% agree. And I think just like employees of companies have had their time now, the great resignation, I think it's being called, because they've realized that maybe the job is when you take away the social interactions at the workplace, friends and lunches and the water cooler conversations that the work that they're doing may not be as fulfilling and rewarding as it is. And we apply that to marketing. What's the lesson for marketing is that all that clickbait advertising that we're doing in the performance channels, yeah, it may get you the sale, but is it getting you a lifetime customer? And that's a pretty interesting dynamic. Thanks for bringing that one up. I, that's a really good point. Are there brands, companies, or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of?
1: One of the things that I'm, I'm following a lot and I think is really fascinating is digital-first brands and direct-to-consumer brands who are then moving, some people call this backwards, I don't, but moving to physical spaces also. So you look at brands like Warby Parker, started a ju- only online eyeglasses company, and now they are very quickly expanding their brick-and-mortar stores. You see the same thing with brands like Allbirds, the shoe brand that is, is going public this week, brands like Lululemon, and Nike that are starting to build experiential centers that aren't about commerce, right? So they're taking away this kind of antiquated idea of revenue per square foot of physical spaces and saying, look, these spaces are just for the experience. Go ahead and you you can buy stuff online later. We don't care if commerce becomes all digital but we want you to experience our brand here. We want you to experience, have these experiences that you associate with happiness and therefore you will always associate happiness with Nike. And then go buy a pair of Jordans on your phone. And we see this most starkly in China where they're probably 10 years ahead of us from an e-commerce perspective where many Chinese people buy everything on their phones. And Alibaba, who's the largest player here, who really controls a lot of this, this e-commerce is starting to build physical shopping malls and people are like, wait, what? Like they're all, they're already 10 years ahead. Everyone's buying everything on their phone. Why would you build a physical shopping mall? Because they don't look at that as a place to do commerce. They look at the place to experience products that you might want to buy on your phone later. And the data shows this across Lululemon, Nike, Alibaba, Dick's Sporting Goods, no matter wh- wh- who you are, that the physical experience actually increases digital commerce. And really, I think that's the way the world is moving. I think in, in 10 years, we are going to buy every single thing on our phones. And then you say, what happens with all of this amazing real estate and all these physical stores, they all become experiential places.
0: I think you're right. I think you're onto something. You keep hitting on things that I own and use every day. Warby Parker, as an example, I think I bought my first pair of Warby Parker glasses in North Carolina and they didn't have a physical store there at that time. I I think they might now. I move up here to Northern Virginia near Washington, D.C., and the mall, not too far away from my house, there's a Warby Parker store. And I had bought a pair, an upgraded prescription online. The fit, I don't know what they call them, the actual, the, the frames. Yeah, the, the frames were a little off behind the ear. Go in and they fix it right there on the spot. And they're like, did you need anything else? I'm like, no, all right. See you later. Come back next time. <laughs> but I wanted to try on some sunglasses while I was in there and, and just to your point, see what other frames are there. Cause I'd only historically use their like five in a box and you pick from the five with what you like best but they mastered the digital realm and moving into the physical realm is it does on the surface sound odd, but it makes a lot of sense, especially if you do it in a really smart way. Cool. Last question for you. What do you feel is the largest opportunity or threat to marketers today?
1: So uh, you, you made a comment a couple of minutes ago about my background, blending the creative poetry side <laughs> with the with my neuroscience background. And I think that the this the way that i look at the future of marketing kind of mirrors that and what i mean by this is that if you look at marketing from i don't know 50 60 years ago it's it's very like people think about mad men the show and it's and what what is marketing in the when was that 1940s 1950s we're sitting around a table discussing creative ads. And it's very creative. And it's very, let's look at the copywriting. Let's look at how people feel about this. And it's all very creative. And now we've shifted the other way, where if you are a you know CMO or VP of marketing at a modern booming company, you are a data person. You understand data. You have real-time dashboards of all of these things that you're working on. You have data analysts in the marketing department. You, are, you look at KPIs to figure out if what you're doing is successful. And my problem with the marketing world is I think that we're still very early in people blending both of these. And I do believe that there's a place for both the creative and the data. And that's essentially what we're trying to do at any road, but also really, I think the biggest opportunity here is to say, look, it's not about only doing Facebook ads and A-B testing the hell out of everything and coming up with great CAC and CTR and conversion rates and like fine. But it's also not about the let's build a beautiful experience and count people's smiles. So I think that, I think the huge opportunity here is taking the both the creative, right? Really immersive, incredible creative experiences, and also the data-driven rigor and by combining this i actually think we we come to something that's far greater than the sum of the parts
0: hi it's alan again marketing today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors sound engineers and writers at share your genius find them at shareyourgenius.com if you're new to marketing today Please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.